and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 221, A Most Unpleasant Morning. Last time, we ended the episode with the newly created naval personnel who would go ashore first and clear the area for the landing of the regular troops. Another special unit would be men of Army intelligence, called field security. Their job was to make contact with British agents on the island and Allied sympathizers, but lastly, to seek out German spies, who may not make it till morning. And the field security had an impressive leg up, again, thanks to Percy Mayer, the Ford Motor Guy turned spy. And as the 29th Brigade would be going ashore, personnel of the field security would be attached to each battalion of the 29th. If all went well, they would be the closest things the Allied had to a crystal ball. For once on shore, they were tasked with taking command of the following. The island's defense headquarters, the residency of the governmental leaders, both police stations, the power station, the post office, the telegraph office, the prison, and finally the bank. The island's civilian, political, and financial resources would come quickly under Allied control, again, if all went according to plan. And to try to make the best of the invasion and occupation, a political warfare officer would go ashore as well and pass out toothpaste and soap to the local French people. How this was supposed to win them over after being bombed and shot at remained a mystery. As World War II will forever be remembered as the war that put air power over naval power, the aircraft of both the Indomitable and Illustrious, some nine squadrons in all, would be involved. Albacores, Sea Hurricanes, Fulmars, Martlets, and Swordfish. Each plane had a specific function, but could help out in other areas if it were needed. Some of the planes from the Indomitable would attack the airfields and also drop leaflets on Antiserain or Antsir Anana, the capital of the Diana region, the part of the peninsula that makes up the southern part of the Diego Suarez Bay. The same would be done at the airfield at Arachart, to the south of Antsir Anana. Specifically, there would be two sorties. The first would just see leaflets dropped which said what was about to come, and five minutes later, the second sortie would again drop pieces of paper, but they would be mixed with ordnance, though the bombs would only be dropped on the airfield at first. Then Fulmars would come in and finish off any enemy planes still operational on the airfield. The remaining aircraft of Indomitable would either protect the transport ships in Courier Bay or patrol over Diego Suarez Bay. Meanwhile, some of the aircraft of the Illustrious would fly over the harbor and attack any spotted subs with no hesitation. That was the order. As for surface ships, as long as they didn't try to get underway or shoot up at the planes, they would be left alone. Other planes from the carrier would patrol in front of the troops, i.e. acting as their eyes in the sky. Still other planes would drop 18 dummy parachutists or cover the ships bombarding the defenses of the Orangia Peninsula, that jut of land that makes up the southern part of the bay's entrance. So the planes were to cover French aircraft and submarines, or else this could all be over very quickly, and only then cover the ground troops as they landed, and of course the ships they came from. That would square away the setup for the attack on Vichy forces. 
But what about the Japanese? On May 4, 1942, the two convoys with the Indomitable and two destroyers met up at a point about 95 miles or 152 kilometers west of the northern tip of Madagascar. As there were now some 50 ships assembled, radio silence was the order of the day. Only once the attack got underway would radio traffic be allowed. For now, it was down to visual signaling. And the last thing the attack force needed was to be spotted or set upon by a Japanese force. So a large chunk of the Eastern Fleet, that is, two battleships, one carrier, five cruisers, and seven destroyers, would be patrolling an area between 139 and 220 miles, or 223 and 354 kilometers respectively, east of Diego Suarez Bay, ready to intercept the Japanese, and they would stay there during the operation. Further, Catalina flying boats would patrol even further east, and again would do so during the operation. As touching the question of the Japanese, Admiral Somerville was told, if a Japanese Navy presence is found and you are stronger, attack and destroy all that you can. If, however, their force was stronger, abort the mission. Fortunately, that day, May 4th, the sun went down with no sightings of enemy forces from the east. At 2.30 p.m., still May 4th, Group 1 of the ships made up of the Ramillies, Illustrious, Indomitable, Hermione, and Seven Destroyers, moved to a position just northwest of the island's tip. The other groups, not yet broken up, would head for Courier Bay, but it would still be a hazardous route. Indeed, Captain Oliver of the Devonshire, in command of the remaining ships, assumed that some of these vessels would be lost in the narrow ways and reefs that made up the approach. In fact, the French considered that an obstacle in and of itself. But to improve his chances, the captain had the destroyers La Foray, Lightning, and Anthony go on ahead to seek out the schooner Lindy, as it was to have lit a way to guide them in. But what would have given Churchill a heart attack, or make him miss his younger days, was that, as it was now dark and the weather was turning rough, the schooner's light was actually maintained by a single man atop a mast, who had to keep turning the light towards the approaching destroyers, as the ship that he was on kept swinging around its anchor. Crazy as this was, it worked. The destroyers got close and started laying buoys along the 15-mile-long channel and then started up their own lights. The convoy soon reached them. They formed up, and the worst was over. Well, besides the actual fighting. Admiral Seifert broke the radio silence and sent the message, Ironclad begun. Group 1, the group that had the two carriers to the northwest of the island, spread out to increase their observational ability, and with that done, the transport ships started heading in. The way was lit, so to speak, but travel was still dangerous for several reasons, the least not being Vichy guns. So the corvette Frisia went in first, with a line of minesweepers on each side, followed by three destroyers and then the cruiser Devonshire. And behind her were the first two assault ships, Winchester Castle and Royal Ulsterman. Aboard them were the East Lancashires and Number 5 Commando. 
Four miles behind them, the separation was needed should any one group be attacked, came the next group. Again, a corvette was in the lead with the transports Kirin, Karanja, and the Polish passenger ship Sobieski. On board were the South Lanks, along with the Scott and Welsh Fusiliers, who would provide police and security duty. Behind them all were the oil and transport ships Derwetdale and Bacadero. Aboard these vessels were the 29th Brigade's motor transport and the artillery of the 9th Field Regiment. And lastly, the destroyer Pakenham, with two destroyers, escorted the last of the troop and motor transport ships of the two brigades from the 5th Division. The first anchorage went smoothly, but when they got closer, that is, past the line of the small islands just before reaching the west coast, the biggest of those being Nozihara, that's when the trouble began. The minesweepers went in first, as mines were known to be floating about six feet under the surface. However, four minesweepers, there were at least ten on the job, got too close to an island and their sweeps were broken. When the still-functioning sweepers were done, 17 mines had been cut. This allowed the assault ships to move closer to shore, but that was it. By 2 a.m., they were in Courier Bay, but would stay in deeper water until all the mines were accounted for. As promised, Percy Mayer had cut the phone lines between the defense headquarters at Antisarana and the Courier Bay batteries, but he also had bad news to give to the British troops when they came ashore. Not that he knew exactly when that would be. Basically, the knockout drops he had given to his guests at the party were only good for two and a half minutes. Therefore, as the bard said, if it were done when tis done, twere well it were done quickly. But by 2.40 a.m., the invasion had not started, so Mayer, thinking it was postponed, returned home, where he was promptly arrested as someone had finally figured out why he had been asking all those questions. And sadly, the latest information he was to have given the British was still in his pocket. With such evidence, Vichy officials determined he was to be shot for espionage. Fortunately, the invasion forestalled this. Yet those first coming ashore would be less lucky. At 2.18, now May 5th, the landing craft started ferrying troops shoreward. But two of those vessels ran into each other, and another group landed at the wrong place. Adjustments were made, and those that were not injured continued towards land. But then a minesweeper caused a mine to detonate. Then another mine went off at 3.15 a.m. However it happened, the French guns nearby did not respond or even seem to notice. The commandos started coming ashore. At first, they missed the shore batteries, so well hidden they were. But an hour later, when sunlight first started to arrive, the huts over the guns were spotted and the commandos slipped in. All the enemy troops were asleep. The commandos started yelling for the Vichy gun crews to come out. A witness wrote, They came tumbling out, holding their hands up in surrender. They were all color troops, and the whole thing was over, just like that. One section of the commandos stayed with these prisoners. The rest moved inland. Soon, two French officers were come upon. Though surprised and outnumbered, the French officers fired and one stabbed a commando in the arm. Seconds later, 
Both Frenchmen were dead. The good and bad of this opening move continued. The commandos found a barracks and soon had six European and 90 Malagasy troops as prisoners. On the other hand, one of the landing parties found that the guns that they were supposed to silence did not exist. But overall, things were moving forward. And there were other problems, as in not having the latest information on troop positions. The commando group that landed to the most north would come ashore near Windsor Castle, really a watchtower on a height. But instead of a few men being there, there were some, and this was 1,200 feet up at the highest point in this area, an entire combat group. There was only one way up, stairs had been cut into the stone, and thus the commandos were kept out of there for the first two days of battle. Not a crushing defeat, still, the invasion force's northern flank was unprotected. By 9 a.m., the commandos, not watching over the prisoners, started making for Diego Suarez's village. And to increase their chances when they were come upon by the enemy, they had two Bren gun carriers, besides which the men in the vehicles had their automatic weapons. But this was more than canceled out by the two 65mm field guns they soon came upon. What should have been an action that led to dead commandos scattered all over the place was rather only a quick pit stop, as the field gun crews who were supposed to oppose them fled. The commandos picked up their pace and soon reached Cap Diego on the eastern end of the Andrancaca Peninsula, the land that made up the bay's western border, which meant that Diego Suarez Bay was starting to be surrounded by Allied forces. But hoping to appease the French when the town was taken, the Union flag and the tricolore were raised at Cap Diego. The French were less than impressed. So far, still, the plan was working. The artillery along Courier Bay had been captured or neutralized by the commandos. So the landing craft of the main assault units started moving toward shore. This was at 4.32 a.m., and as that was the case, it was time for a bit of sleight of hand. As the assault ships moved in, the HMS Hermione, near the eastern shore, about five miles from land, started making as much noise as possible. As the guns of the Hermione started going off, the Vichy officer in charge of the batteries on the Orangia Peninsula, again the jut of land that makes up the southern part of the bay's entrance, Captain Laporte contacted headquarters. To their credit, within 10 minutes, the senior officers in the capital area were brought together. Their movement was matched by the sirens going off all around town. 30 minutes later, at 4 a.m., the aircraft started to lift off from Illustrious and Indomitable. The carriers themselves were just north of the island, but the planes were told to wait 30 minutes and then begin attacking targets along the eastern Sure, anything to keep local eyes from turning to the west, where the real attack was coming from. But the British wouldn't have it easy, and the issue started right away. The first aircraft to leave the carriers were carrying torpedoes. Soon, six swordfish had spotted the Don Icastu, so went after her. All their torpedoes, however, missed the battleship. And yet... One torpedo that went under the target ship came up enough to hit a nearby auxiliary ship, Bougainville. 
The stricken ship broke in two and started going down. But to their credit, the crew of the slowly sinking ship were still firing their AA guns at the swordfish, though none of these were hit. At 5.05 a.m., the Bougainville was hit again and soon was gone from all eyes. Another really important target was the French sub, Beauvizier. So three other aircraft spotted the sub as she moved to deeper waters. That could not be allowed to happen. So those planes carrying depth charges went in. One, two, three. Each plane dropped its main weapon, which had the intended effect. The BUVZA listed to starboard, caught on fire, and then went under the waves, but not under her own power. Thus far, the opening moves went to the British, but it cost them. Five aircraft had been lost so far. Four to enemy fire, one because its engine stalled, but the crew was rescued. But this fight wasn't done. It was only beginning. Those French sailors who had survived losing the ship and their sub, they would soon be on the southern peninsula of the bay with guns in their hand, fighting on land. By the time the third wave from Illustrious was in position to attack, the French guns were manned on land and on the various ships. The commander of the Cap Diego battery, though his position was quickly becoming cut off by the commandos nonetheless, rode out into Diego Suarez Bay in a small boat to judge the accuracy of his men's AA fire and to direct it better. As for the Vichy infantry and civilians, as planned, the planes that went in first dropped leaflets to avoid the loss of life. But then, those same planes, they made an attack run on the sloop Beauvizier. But unlike before, the sloop was struck this time and was forced to head into a cove as parts of her were on fire. But as Mars, the god of war, gives, he also takes away. The Vichy ship was damaged, but the British flight leader, Lieutenant Everett, had been hit. His plane was forced to land upside down on a beach on the eastern coast. He and his crewman, Pilot Officer Graves, were taken prisoner. And it would be while they were being held in Ansir Anana that their fellow pilots bombed the town. Believe it or not, the leaflets meant little to those now being bombed. Governor Annette had said as much, but leave it to Admiral Seifert to say what was not being said. In a report, he wrote, What the inhabitants did with the leaflets would surprise their originators. Clearly, if the British-led forces wanted Madagascar, they would have to take it. The fight was on. And as that was the case, the airfield just south of Antsir Anana was the next target. And in fact, the British planes were already en route. And with that, this battle was now taking place in the air, on the sea, and on land. And if the British won, they could then battle for the hearts and minds of the Malagasy.